not alone. Amen. Amen. You know, every time I come to this podium to speak on God's behalf, it's a very unnerving situation because I understand that I have a responsibility to speak on God's behalf. And when I say I covet your prayers, I mean that. Because I do not want to say stuff just because I know the words. I do not want to say them just because I could pull on your heartstring. I don't want to do that. I want to do only what God wants done. And so, as we are about to look into the word of God today, I want us to truly appreciate that God is here and he wants to tell you something. Heavenly Father and God, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your word I cling, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Two paddle boats were leaving Memphis at about the same time. They were traveling down the Mississippi River to New Orleans, and as they traveled side by side, sailors from one boat made a comment about the slow pace of the other boat. Words were exchanged and challenges were issued and so the race was on. The competition was fierce. One of the boats began to fall behind because they didn't have enough fuel. There was plenty of coal for the trip, but not for the race. As the boat continued to drop back, a quick-witted sailor took some of the ship's cargo and tossed it into the ovens. The sailors saw that the supplies burned as good as coal. So they fueled their boat with the supplies they had been assigned to transport. They won the race, but their cargo was lost. Winning can often cost us more than we planned. For the athlete, winning can mean strict diets and strenuous, painful exercise. For the college student, winning can require late night studying when everybody else is out having fun and often being college kind of broke. For the parent, winning can mean sleepless nights and trying to make ends meet. Winning does not come easily. We usually have to give up something, something dear to us, if we want to win. 
So in today's lesson, we will explore what our brother Joshua had to give up so he could win. Our topic for today is prepare for battle. Prepare for battle. Our first point for today is to look up. If you want to prepare for battle, you must look up expectantly. Look up expectantly. Most of us have been taught so many times to look inside yourself. Because the power is within you. You can do it. And we actually bought into that. But in the first verse of our text in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Now Joshua was chosen to succeed Moses. Moses was the greatest leader Israel had ever, ever known. He was given the task to lead the people, Joshua was, into the promised land. And Moses had left some huge shoes to fill. Because if you consider the amazing feat that God had done through Moses, it was an amazing task that Joshua had to complete. You had the burning bush, the plagues of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, water from a rock, manna from heaven, the Ten Commandments, all of these happened under the watch of Moses. And now Joshua has to follow him. Well, it wasn't too hard to follow somebody who's dead because Moses had died. And before they could enter the land, Joshua was given the unenviable responsibility to finish the task that Moses started. Now, Joshua's task, though, he was not alone. You see, God had selected Joshua to lead his people, and so to encourage him, he also gave him a promise. He promised him in verse 5 of chapter 1, he said, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that's an awesome promise. Now, unlike me, though, when I promise you something, it, no matter how many good intentions I may have, I may not be able to fulfill it. Mm. But when God makes a promise, yes. 
It's different. God fulfilled that promise he made to Joshua for just a few days prior to today's text. God worked an amazing miracle through Joshua. You see, the people needed to cross over Jordan. And the Jordan River, it was the high season, and so the Jordan River was really flowing in a rough way. So much so that it overflowed its banks. They had just left, and now they have to cross over Jordan in order to get into the promised land. What are they going to do? Moses is dead. Now everybody's eyes turn to Joshua. So Joshua goes to God, and God tells him what to do. And somehow God displays his amazing power by making the rivers of the Jordan River to stand still. God told him, send the priests first, and as soon as they step into the river, just look what's going to happen. And when they were in the river, the water that was flowing down just stopped. And it kept coming down, and it kept higher and higher, but it wouldn't pass. It would just keep going up, and it would stay right there until all the water that was south of that just kept going until it disappeared. And it stayed like that until the ground was dry. Something like Moses and the Red Sea, doesn't it? Just like he did for Moses, he did for Joshua. And the people of God crossed over on dry ground. And the Lord, he says, exalted Joshua in verse 14 of chapter 4 in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they stood in awe of Moses. But here in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua's leadership was going to be tested again. And this time is because they're going to fight. Now, do you know the people of Israel, they had just come from where? Slavery. They were doing what there? Building bricks. Making building. Now they're going to be fighters? Warriors, armies, soldiers. That's what they're going to be now. Interesting, isn't it? Having gone from that to this and never really had to handle a sword before, now they got to fight. And upcoming before them was not a little city either. It is what we call the city of Jericho, which is the most formidable city in the entire land of Canaan. So he's talking about going from zero to 100. From never having to fight before to now to fight the biggest fight of your life. The walls of Jericho is said to have gone all around the city. And they were so thick, it is believed that two chariots 
can run simultaneously next to each other on top of these walls. This is where they're going to fight. And so they come up against this, and Joshua now has to prove his mettle. So what does he do? What does he do? It is a very humbling experience, but it was an encounter that prepared him for battle and for victory. Because the will to win, as great as it is, the will to prepare is even more important. A lot of people think that you just win because <laughs> you went into a fight. No, you don't. You have to prepare if you want to win. It was just yesterday I was telling, I was talking with my, my girls and telling them about Usain Bolt. Everybody probably still remembers him and how he has all these gold medals every, every time he competed. He never got a silver medal in his life. He always got gold medal, all right? So for 10 seconds, that's all that his race lasts, actually less. But for less than 10 seconds, the amount of training he has to do, the amount of preparation he had to do. I saw one of his training sessions, and he was puking his guts out just to run for 10 seconds. Nobody sees that. All they see is the 10 seconds that they keep replaying, replaying because it's so short. For 10 seconds of his life, he had to prepare for a whole lifetime. So the evening before the battle, Joshua goes out to look at the city. Jericho, as I said, was, a, was not too far from Jordan, remember? Just five miles down the road. So he could probably have seen it when he was crossing over Jordan. And it was the most formidable city. But God had directed Joshua here. It is, was not an accident that Joshua ended up in front of Jericho and he has to fight. The purpose of this battle was to conquer the enemy as it is with every enemy. And we need to remember that we have an enemy who means our destruction. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, the Bible says, Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is in active pursuit of somebody to eat them up. As a child of God, you're in a battle. And if you don't look out for the enemy, he's going to eat you up. So our enemy wants to destroy our families. Our enemy wants to destroy our faith. He wants to destroy our testimony. He wants to destroy the work of God in our life. He wants to destroy us. God made it clear. He comes for no other reason but to steal, kill, and destroy. 
So I'm wondering then, as people of God, why are we playing with him? Why do we treat the enemy like if he is a little imp dressed up in a red suit and a tail and some horns? Why do we think that it is a joke when we talk about the enemy? He is bent on destroying the people of God. If we understood, clearly understood, that is his purpose. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to butter it up. He's not trying to put any kind of dressing on it. It tells us clearly, he is trying to destroy you. So why are you playing with sin? Why are we playing with sin? You know, one verse comes to me back in the book of Matthew when the Bible says that if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Remember? And if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, I like to remind myself and you that people with one hand can be just as evil as somebody with two hands. In other words, one-eyed man can be just as lustful as if he had two eyes. Because I've heard, I mean, some of these people have heard, of people, blind men and women, who have been, oh, so, mm, they're so lustful and they have no eyes to see. So we know it couldn't be God calling us to maim ourselves and be one-eyed saints. That's not what it's about. The point about the scripture is that we have to be radical when it comes to dealing with sin. If your eye is causing you to stumble, don't play with the thing. If you got stuff on your screen that you, you keep changing every time somebody comes by, don't try to close the door. Don't try to erase the cookies. Don't try to clear the history. Stop playing Amen. with the sin. Right. It's time to be radical. You have to get rid of it. Get rid of it. So Joshua comes up outside of Jericho, and he appears to be all alone. But remember, we will never defeat the enemy on our own. We have no business trying to resist the devil on our own. The book of James says we must first submit ourselves to God so we may realize God's purpose in every battle that we are fighting. God doesn't just throw us out there for us to just go fight and get beaten up. There's a purpose why he puts us in battles because there's something for us to learn and to grow. So as I said, Joshua lifted up his eyes and looked. 
When he looked up, he saw a man in front of him. Joshua is now the leader of millions of men, women, and children. He holds a great deal of responsibility. His decisions will have a long-lasting impact on a vast multitude of people. They are going into a battle. And in a battle, men are maimed. In a battle, men die. In a battle, children are left fatherless. Wives become widows when you go into battle. So when Joshua is about to take on this responsibility, he doesn't take it lightly. He understands that a lot is riding on his decisions. He carried a heavy burden. But the greatest burden that he had was not the fact that his brothers and sisters would be left as widows or orphans was the fact that God called him to do it. And I wonder sometimes, does that matter to us? When you've given a task to do, does it matter that it was God who called you to this task? Or does it matter more that the employer was going to pay you? Does it matter more that you will get recognition? Your name will be up as the employee of the month. That you will get a raise. Does it matter that it was God who called you? That you will have to answer to God for how you performed. Leaders make decisions that impact lots of people. As parents, our decisions are going to impact our children. As husbands or wives, our decisions will impact each other. No one is an island. You are not going to have no victimless crime. You can't do anything that does not affect somebody else. No matter how much you want to try to convince yourself, you are not alone when you do anything good or bad. Look at your child. They come home to do their homework. And you almost do the whole thing for them. And they go home to the school and they get a perfect grade and they're putting up there and they're all being praised and clapped for. And you're there in the audience and you know you did the whole thing. <laughs> but the child is the one getting out. But you feel like it was everything that happens to the child, you feel like it's you. And then that child go and make a fool of themselves and then think that it doesn't affect you now. They go to school and get in all kind of fights, stealing this, doing that, and they think it's just them. I didn't do anybody. I didn't do you. You really? No, it doesn't work like that. You know, sometimes when I think about people getting money and rich and inheritance and stuff, you know, we look down, we look at people and we think that, okay, if this guy was rich, we are glad to be connected to him. Because now we got a lot of money coming our way. Right? But if, my, if, your, if your daddy, granddaddy was poor, oh, you got nothing. We just a part of this, just the whole picture. Why are you mad? Because of the hands that you got. If you had nothing before you, they can't pass down anything. It wasn't because you did something. It's just because the person came before you didn't do 
Solomon was a rich man, not because he was always, he did so much stuff before him, but because David did something. He got all the blessings because David did something. And so some people get a whole lot of stuff in their life because their parents did something. And some people got a whole bunch of stuff in their life because their parents did something else. <laughs> but either way, whatever situation you're in, God is right there and he wants us to know this situation has a lesson for us too. So if Joshua were to fail, Israel would suffer. So Joshua sees this man and he boldly approaches this man with the drawn sword. As a shepherd over God's people, he has a responsibility to see if this man is a friend or foe. Now before we lead others into battle, we often must first fight alone. You have to go to some one-on-one -on -one combat. You're going to have to go to some nights when you're your significant other, no, I should say, your spouse, I shouldn't say significant other because that gets, your spouse next to you, they don't even have any idea the full ramifications of what you're going through. You're going to have to battle some of these things alone. The picture here is one who is prepared for battle. Joshua confronts this man and asks, are you with us or against us? This opponent was obviously much, much bigger than Joshua. Joshua had to look up, the Bible says. But Joshua was not easily intimidated by the size of this man. He had just seen what God could do. Remember? Just a few days ago, God had done the Jordan River thing. So he, had, he was riding on that victory still. So Joshua stepped forward, ready to battle if necessary. Because few things boost somebody's confidence like success. When you've just done something good, you feel like you know I could do another one. There was a battle that had to be fought, and Joshua was going into it expecting to win. Point two, how do you prepare? You have to bow down reverently. In verse 14, this is what the man answers. Neither, he replied. King James said no. I like that answer though. That answer was real funny to me when King James said no. Because he asked him, are you for us or against us? And he said no. What is that? He said neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Let's listen to this illustration. A few centuries before Christ, Alexander the Great conquered almost all of the known world with his military strength and cleverness and diplomacy. Well, one day, Alexander and a small company of soldiers approached a strongly defended walled city. Alexander, standing outside the wall, raised his voice and demanded to see the king. The king approaching the battlements above the invading army agreed to hear Alexander's demands. Alexander says, surrender to me immediately. The king just laughed. 
Why should I surrender to you? We have you far outnumbered. You are no threat to us. Alexander was ready to answer the challenge. He said, allow me to demonstrate why you should surrender. Alexander ordered his men to line up single file and start marching. He marched them straight towards a sheer cliff that dropped hundreds of feet to rocks below. The king and his soldiers watched in shock disbelief as one by one, Alexander's soldiers marched without hesitation right off of the cliff to their deaths. After 10 soldiers had died, Alexander ordered the rest of his men to stop and return to his side. Having seen that demonstration, the king and his soldiers surrendered to Alexander the Great on the spot. If this man could command such that people would just at his word walk to their death and will keep on walking to their death, even though they saw somebody else just die, they figured this man has more power than I thought. So this man's response was almost elusive. As I said in King James, he said no. And it doesn't seem to be a proper response. But the man who refuses to answer Joshua's question because it was not the right question. And it is not the most important question to be asked at this time. The question really wasn't if the Lord was on Joshua's side. The proper question was, was Joshua on the Lord's side? I know we like to sing songs about God is on my side. When you think about it, you don't want God on your side. Because your side is often wrong. We used to sing another song. Which side are you leaning on? Remember that old song? And he used to say, the answer was, I'm leaning on the Lord's side. Because it's important for us to understand which side is the right side. And so this commander says, it's not about me coming to side with you. I know you think you have all of that because you just had Jordan happen. But I'm not here to side with you. So you, you got your sword out and you could fight me. You want a piece of me? The commander says, no, I ain't fighting you. The question is, are you going to be on my side? This man identified himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Who is this commander of the Lord's army? Most scholars believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. They call it a theophany. Some further evidence that this is the Christ is that he accepted Joshua's worship. That is important because angels do not 
accept worship. Remember that. Anytime an angel showed up and anybody tried to worship them, they said, you cannot do that. But this person accepted the worship of Joshua. Secondly, the area was made holy by his presence. Imagine that. This person showed up, and suddenly where he shows up is declared holy. Thirdly, he is referred to as the Lord, meaning Jehovah. Now, this isn't the first time it is believed that the pre-incarnate Christ showed up. It is believed that he showed up with Hagar in Genesis, with Abraham, with Jacob, Moses, Gideon, with Isaiah, in the fiery furnace. We know remember that one? Yes. Yeah, remember that one well, well, don't we? He showed up in there. And with Daniel as well. So we know this is that God shows up at some times. Now Joshua was about to lead Israel into battle, but he was not alone. He was being accompanied by the great commander. But notice what he says. He is the commander of the heavenly host. Which means the commander is not alone either. This man identified himself as the commander, the captain of a whole army. A whole host of heavenly warriors were with him. So Joshua was right there, and he thought he was just surveying Jericho by himself. He thought he was going to have to stand alone. And God said, not only do you have me, you got all of heaven with you. Now, many of us have enlisted in God's army, and for a time, we did fight well. But then the enemy launched an all-out assault, and we suffered some great defeat. We were beaten up, and we were beaten down. Life seemed overwhelming. We know the promises, and we know of the power of our God. But together, we just don't find ourselves in a good place. We find ourselves in distress and discouragement and doubt, and we feel defeated. The problem is that we are trying to fight this formidable, formidable enemy in our own strength. We are trying to do it in our own power. We think we are smart enough. We think we've had enough experience. We've had, this is not our first rodeo. I don't know, where the, but you think this is not your first rodeo, you say. I've done this before. But it, the enemy knows you, and he knows how to defeat you. We cannot win this battle that way. Without Christ, we will never defeat Satan. Satan is much, much more powerful than all of us. Let me say this. In the book of Jude, the Bible says that Michael did not wail 
an accusation against Satan when they were arguing about the body of Moses. He wouldn't even dare go against Satan in his own power. Michael the archangel. But he said, the Bible says, but God rebukes you. The end is Satan, I've listened to some people and think, people think that Satan is a, a, little, a little boy. That when they say, Satan, you're under my feet, that now Satan says, oh. <laughs> That he now gets scared because you said something. That he's now intimidated because you went to church on Sunday, heard a, a, a nice message, and now you feel all powerful. And you could now tell him, Satan, I rebuke you. <laughs> and now Satan is supposed to be afraid. Uh-uh. <laughs> He's not intimidated by you. He's not intimidated by me. But he is intimidated by God. Yes. Big difference. Big difference. You see, I, I, I like to draw the analogy of, um, you got this five foot three um, police officer, okay? And she even looks lower because she's still in her car, okay? <laughs> and you're driving along and it's, the, the speed limit says 30, all right? And you switched by. You were doing 45. And as you know, you got the red light, green light, and you got blue light. You see blue light in your rear view mirror. So you stop, and then you see this little person comes out. She got on a uniform, though. Okay? And she says, License and registration, please. Now you are six foot five, 250 pounds. What are you going to do? You're going to pull out your license and registration, please. Because it was not a matter of her size, it's because she comes in the name of the authority that was given to her. And so when we go to fight the enemy, yes. it's not a matter of our side. We must make sure that we are going in the name, yes. the authority, the power of God who sent us there. So don't, be, don't go fighting fights that God didn't send you to. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say as well. Some of us put ourselves in something that God never sent us to fight. That's why I said earlier, Joshua was brought to this point by God because he was establishing Joshua. And so he was going to make sure that Joshua was going to be victorious. Like David, when we go to fight, even like those nine-foot people that it seems, he says, you don't go in yourself, in your own skill, no matter what, how skillful you think you are. David said, you come to me with your, with your sword and your spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord that you are defiling. Yes. And that's why he defeated Goliath. So Joshua, when he recognized this man, he fell to his face and he worshipped this great leader. Joshua acknowledges the sovereignty of the Lord, bowing to his 
Faith signifies that Joshua was ready to submit to God's will. If you want to prepare for the battle, you have to submit to God's will. And you know that he did it because when he demonstrated it, his submission, when he asked, what do you want me to do? A lot of us say we submit. That's a nice word to say because you're in church. And church people always say the right things when they're in church. But when they get out of church, they don't ask God, God, what you want me to do? We know that we don't ask God that. When we step out there, we go to the car dealership, we go to the department store, we go to the bank, we go to the restaurant, and God had no part of the conversation. None. And we know that is true. We never seem to ask God, what do you want me to do? When we get up in the morning and we have a whole day ahead of us, do you ask God, God, you give me another day. It means you got something for me to do. What is it that you want me to do today? No, we got our calendar, we got our phone, we got all our to-do lists, all our tasks, and we got that to go by. We don't need God to tell us we could plan our own day out. Isn't that how we operate? God is saying, though, to Joshua, when we really submit, we're asking God, what do you want me to do? Tell me, because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. See, when you got enough degrees to your name, you know, almost look like a thermometer kind of thing, you think you, could, you don't need God. You could figure it out. You're really smart. Your mama been telling you that even before you could talk. You're smart. You're really smart. Them, they're dumb. You're smart. And you believed it. And now we got children who believe they're so smart that they don't need God. Who grew up to be adults sitting in these pews right now who still acting like they don't need God. They make so much money, they don't need God to ask to tell them how to spend it anymore. So they got credit cards and credit cards and credit cards and $20,000 in debt. Because they didn't need God. Hmm. All kind of stuff going on. Because we never asked God, what did you want me to do? I don't, I really think that we don't ask God because we don't think he's going to answer. Or we do not think we're going to like what he answers. Because what are you going to tell us to do? We ain't want to do it. You know like that guy falling off of the cliff? And he said, and he grabbed onto the brad root that was sticking out, and he said, Lord, save me. And God said, okay, let go. <laughs> so he, said, he prayed again, God, save me. <laughs> Anybody up there? Somebody save me. And God said, let go. So, so then he said, okay. Is anybody else up there? <laughs> because most of us don't like the answers God give us. God give us some things that test our allegiance to him. 
because most of us really don't have the allegiance to him. We have allegiance to ourselves and other stuff. Now, victory comes when we realize that we cannot win without God. Victory comes when we realize we cannot win without God. Remember, Joshua was the chosen leader of the people of Israel, but here he prostrates himself and yields his leadership to the Lord. If we desire to experience victory in the battle of the Christian life, we must do this very same thing. We must be submissive before we can experience victory. The first step to victory is not developing a plan of attack. The first plan is not about putting on the armor right. The first thing we need to do before we go into any battle is to humble ourselves before the Lord, fall prostrate before him. We must lay down our swords at the feet of the Lord and ask him, what do you want me to do? So when we submit to God, does that feel like weakness to you? Does it feel like you're a failure if you give up? Or does it feel like freedom? Imagine that. Could you see submission as freedom? You know, a child when they submit to the parents' responsibility and all that they say and do, they're free. They ain't gonna worry about whether they're gonna eat mac and cheese tonight. They're not worried about anything like that. That's your responsibility. I give up, I ain't doing it, I'm just gonna play. That's what a child does. But us as adults, as we grow up, we see this submission thing as something that's a struggle because I'm losing control. I need to have control of my life. I can't let anybody else, including God, have control of my life. When God said, you don't have control. You don't even have the next breath. You can't even decide if you're gonna get up tomorrow. What kind of control you got? You're just fooling yourself. But you're struggling in a fight that you can't even win. So submission is the best thing we can do when it comes to God. Finally, our point, last point is we must obey promptly. When you want to prepare for battle, obey promptly. In verse 15, he said, the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua's total submission to Jesus Christ shows that he knows who is really in charge. The commander had come to instruct Joshua in the plan to, captive, to capture Jericho. That was a plan that was so improbable, it could have only come, could have only been initiated directly from God. Nobody in their right mind would tell you if you're going to go to fight a battle around a well-formidable opponent with walls around to walk around the city every day. 
for six days. And then on the seventh day, you walk around seven times. What kind of a plan is that? How do you defeat an army like that, walking around a wall? And you face somebody even throw something down on your head? Yeah. I mean, all kinds of stuff they're going to do what? What kind of a fighting strategy is this? And that's how you know Joshua couldn't come up with this. No advisor could have come up with this plan. Only God could come up with crazy plans like this. And we must understand, he is able to do beyond what you could think. If he could make food literally fall from heaven, if he could make water come out of a stone, if he could make water stand up on the sides, if he could do all of this, if he tell me to walk, I don't understand it, but he never asked us to understand, does he? God has never asked us to understand. He just asked us to obey. So Joshua has this plan, and God had a plan to conquer Jericho. But before God can conquer Jericho, God had to conquer Israel and Joshua. You see, Joshua and Israel had to be conquered. Before Israel can conquer anything else in this promised land, they had to be conquered by God. They had to give up to God. And the victorious believer must understand that they have to be continually conquered by God. If you want to be victorious in this Christian life, God must win. When it comes to whose way is going to get done, for you to be victorious, you have to lose. You understand that? You can't win if you want to win. You have to lose if you really want to win. Messed up. But I said, that's what God does. That's how he does it. Because he always does things differently. The way up is always down. If you want to be exalted, he says, you have to humble yourself. If you want to be rich in the kingdom of God, suddenly you got to be poor, he says. I must be poor in spirit, the Bible says. That means bankrupt. I've got nothing if you want to be rich in the kingdom of God. God might don't work like ours, okay? He doesn't think like us. His ways are high above us. So Joshua fully surrendered to the Lord of hosts, and Joshua is commanded to take off his sandals for he was standing on holy ground. This is the same thing 
Remember that Moses heard, take off your shoes, for the place you're standing is holy ground. The ground was consecrated by the presence of the Lord. And I ask, is your home, are our homes, holy ground? Meaning, is the presence of God there? Is the presence of God there to make our homes holy? To remove the shoe was a signal of reverence. In the ancient times, when a covenant was made between two individuals in which one person possessed power to keep the covenant and the other didn't, the weaker individual handed the other individual one of his shoes, just like he did with Ruth and Boaz in the story of, of um, Boaz. Joshua realized the great task that awaited he and the people of Israel. He also knew he was facing a battle he could not win in his own strength. But when he yielded himself and surrendered to the Lord, he essentially said, Lord, I can't, but you can. If we want to find victory in our lives, we must realize that we can't win, but God can. Some of us, we are fighting a battle with health. You can't win. Some are fighting with battles in their marriages. You can't win. Battles in our finances, you can't win. Battles on your employment, you can't win. In your family, you can't win. In your spiritual life, you can't not win. We have been fighting for so long and have made so little progress. We become depressed and discouraged and defeated. We don't feel like we can fight another day. We must then do like Joshua, take off our shoes. Take the shoes off, surrender to the Lord, and say, God, we can't win, but you can. After Joshua surrendered, the Lord told him where to go. He told him when to go, and then he told him what to do. Joshua and Israel experienced a great and awesome victory. The priests blew the trumpets, the people shouted, and with a great shout, and the walls of Jericho fell flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. I'm just about done. But I just wanted to say this. They went straight into the city because the, well, the walls fell flat. The wall fell flat. And for a while, I thought that the wall tumbled over. And someone wouldn't that hit them? when it was falling over, crumbling and stuff. But it says that they walked straight ahead because somehow God swallowed up the walls. The walls went down. And the men went straight, the Bible says. I told you God don't do things like we think. He went, they, they went down. Ten-foot wall just disappeared into the ground. And the men just <laughs> went in. 
Word of God. It's time to stop trying to fight our battles alone. We can't win. Surrender to God and say once and for all, we can't do it, Lord, but you can. Final illustration. For many years, Bruce Lawson worked in New York City and counseled at his office any number of people who were wrestling with this yes or no decision. Often he would suggest they walk with him from his office down to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautifully proportioned man who, with all his muscles straining, is holding up the whole world on his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand under this burden. Now that's one way to live, he would say to them, trying to carry the world on your shoulders. But now come across the street with me. On the other side of Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral, and there behind a high altar is a little shrine of a boy, Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old, and with no effort, he is holding the world in one hand. His point was graphically illustrated. He says, you now, we now have a choice. We can carry the world ourselves on our shoulders. Or we can say, God, I give up. Here's my life. Here's my whole life. I don't hold anything back. You can carry this. Have you realized that fighting a battle that you can't win? Have you realized that the only way for us to win is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? It is only when we say, I can't do it, God, but you can. That is the only way to have victory in a battle that we can't win. So let us do it today. We'll all be glad that we did. Amen. Today we want to pause for those who want to spend a little bit of time talking to God. This is